0: Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest.
1: And I'm Mark Wood.
0: In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes, as we all shelter in place.
1: This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today.
0: Today, we welcome Pillar Prize winning journalist Bill Keller, class of 1970, former executive editor of The New York Times and founding editor of the Marshall Project.
1: Welcome, Bill. It's good to have you with us and kind of not but, with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I should say this is being recorded on April 21st at the height of the epidemic in New York, which is where you are. Um, so how are you adjusting to life in the time of plague?
2: <laughs> uh, well, we're incredibly lucky uh, in that Ten or twelve years ago, we came into some inheritance and we bought ourselves a weekend house. Um, when I retired last year, it became pretty much our primary residence. And when the lockdown began, it became our full-time residence. So we're <laughs> we're in Southampton. Um, we're um, you know we've got a kind of routine. We've built enough stuff into the schedule so that it feels almost normal. You know cooking a family dinner and exercising. And we've been um, spending a little time each day assembling um, surgical gowns for first responders in our area. Uh, uh, Yeah. We're here. It's with uh, my wife, Emma, uh, our younger daughter, Alice and two dogs. The other, um, Amona member of the family, Molly, class of 19, mm-hmm. is hunkered down in her tiny little apartment in Flatbush in Brooklyn, um, where she's doing remote teaching to a bunch of middle schoolers who, uh, who were her fifth grade history <laughs> class until the plague hit. Yeah. So we're, you know, we'd rather have her out here, but she's stubborn about being independent. <laughs> and- <laughs> It seems sense to encourage that in people, I think.
0: <laughs> we see it as an attribute most times. <laughs> yeah. um, Bill, you retired a little over a year ago from the Marshall Project. Does an event like this pandemic make you wish you were back out in the front lines covering the news?
2: Oh, I get a little reflexive twinges of, you know, I wish I were there. Um, but mostly, no. I, I mean, I had... Uh, uh, my share of big stories to cover uh either as a correspondent or as an editor um so i don't i don't really feel left out and in fact reading the coverage which i'm doing addictively um i find it kind of exhausting (laughs) so you can imagine what the people who are going through who are actually doing it Uh, but i have i you know i read uh pretty voraciously. Uh, I you know, start my day with NPR. I read the Times. I've actually, I've kind of graduated to the Times online, but I've discovered that they're still delivering the paper version out here, and so we are seven days a week subscribers again. Uh, I read the Washington Post online, and then I follow a couple of aggregators who, uh, who are the sort of smart pre-selectors of, Things I might want to read, um, but no, it, it it really doesn't. You know, I, I, any news story you sort of feel a little tug, um, but it's I, I find it's on the on the, for the most part. I'm happy being on the by being a bystander.
1: So you say you've been reading a lot of news. Um, you know, if you're an outside by. You know. Outside observer now, but uh, and a knowledgeable one. Uh, how do you? How well do you think the media is doing in covering this?
2: I think the major media that I've read have been heroic. Uh, I mean, the coverage has been uh, deep. Um, they've just, they've, it's been hard nosed. Um, uh, there's a lot of, particularly in the, the bigger papers that can afford the space, a lot of service journalism. Um, you know, which people really need now, everything from, you know, w- what uh, videos to binge watch to <laughs> what to cook to how to wash your hands. I have to say I've, I've been kind of keeping a kind of mental list in my head of things that I never thought I'd see in the New York Times, which <laughs> range, from, range from the ridiculous. Uh, they actually ran an article on how to teach your dog to crap indoors, Uh, (laughs)
0: important.
2: but it was not something i ever expected to see of course
0: (laughs)
3: course. Uh,
2: they also ran a i mean the on the more sublime side they ran a wonderful article by dan barry one of my favorite times writers who he wrote a fantasy opening day of the baseball season because Uh, it it was going to be an opening day of the baseball season and he sort of Assembled snippets from great historic opening days of the past, Uh, and they put it on the front page.
1: I missed that one. I'll have to look it up.
2: Definitely look it up. It's it's a real treat. Uh, But there's a you know they they've run full page photo essays on how to wash your hands. They've run patterns for how to cut out and sew a surgical mask. Um, You know this is. People want it, uh, and yeah. it's a public service. It's just, you know, I've thought for a long time that in this, you know, race for survival of the news media, the, the, the ones that will make it are the ones that can adapt. Uh, and, you know, one reason I have a lot of confidence that the New York Times will survive this, I mean, literally survive it uh but survive it as an institution uh it's because they're experimental and innovative, despite the sort of entrenched refutation as of being the gray lady and being uh you know dull uh they've they've really reinvented themselves uh, and you know it's easy to kind of poke fun as I do at some of the weirder things that had been published uh, since the, the coronavirus. Uh, but I think they're a symptom of something really healthy, which is you know a, um, a newspaper trying to rise to the occasion and uh, and do things different ways that work.
0: Bill, let's back up for a moment to your Pomona college years. How did you okay. end up to I can to remember
2: Pomona. back that far.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure you can. How did you end up at Pomona and what was that experience like?
2: Um, Well, let's see. I guess that the application would have been uh, 66. Um, I remember I applied to about half a dozen places. Uh, One of them was, to digress a bit, one of them was Stanford, which was the among other things about a 15 minute drive from our house
3: Mm.
2: uh which which in hindsight is a a good reason that i didn't go there Uh, i mean (laughs) a good thing that i didn't go there because i would have been coming home every weekend to get my laundry done but um (laughs) but i i've had this lifelong bizarre relationship with stanford i was born in the stanford medical center hospital because it was the closest hospital to where we live my father died there in that hospital Um, I've lectured three or four times at Stanford, um, and I didn't get in. Um, and not only did I not get in, but a a friend of mine who works at Stanford looked up what the acceptance rate was in the year 1966. It was 62% (laughs) and I still didn't get in. Um, so just as well. Anyway, um, while, while I was looking for places to apply to, uh, I was tempted by Reed College in Oregon, which had a reputation for being a kind of a better radical, radicalism, which sounded sort of appealing. And my father, who uh, went to MIT and and who used to do sort of alumni interviewing for people who were applying from California to MIT, Uh, So he sort of knew the the school landscape pretty well. And he said, you should look at this place called Pomona. He said, it's like reed with shoes. (laughs) Uh, uh, The irony was that my my roommate at Pomona was Dave Smith, who was a surfer from Santa Cruz who never wore shoes. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, that's... Uh, I did a, I did a visit, uh, loved it. I think, you know, my daughter who, uh, who graduated last year from Pomona um, had the same experience. It was just sort of, we were doing the West Coast swing of the college visits, uh, and, you know, we did all the usual suspects. Uh, and she got to Pomona and it was just, she just sort of knew that was where she wanted to go. And yeah. I, I don't think it's because I went there, maybe more likely in spite of the fact that I went there. <laughs> I to, you know, you don't, huh? yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, um, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it felt right yeah. from the beginning.
1: Um, so how did you become interested in, in journalism and, and what's kept you interested all these years?
2: Well, when people ask what my major was at Pomona, I always say uh, only half facetiously I majored in the school paper, uh, which in those days was called the Collegian. Uh, Student life existed then, but it was a Pomona paper. There was a paper called the Collegian, which was twice weekly and was a five college paper. Mm -hmm. Um, I joined up my freshman year and spent a lot of time. uh, That was my my sort of friend, friend cohort, and um, it meant that you know the, it was a pretty lively time. Um, you know, you had the anti-war movement and the Black Student Movement, and even though Pomona's not exactly in a major metropolis, uh, it was hard, not at all immune to the excitement of those. Days. Uh, I've just been thinking recently that, you know, watching, I, I still get, um, because I'm a, an emeritus trustee, I still get copies of uh, Gabby Starr's news reports and updates on what's going on at the campus. And I've been following this sort of class of 70s uh, virtual ending. Um, you know, they're not going to have a conventional comm- commencement, and I know that's a uh, a hard thing for a lot of students. Uh, it's actually quite similar to what happened at, to the, the class of 70. We did have a commencement, but the last three weeks of school were just, they just ended the demonstrations and class associated with the war. Uh, so three weeks before the end of the season, they basically said, Okay, no more classes, and then they had a big debate over how they were going to handle grades, and they basically put everybody on a pass-fail um, system, uh, and it kind of, you know, ended with a whimper.
1: So the biggest part of your career was spent at the Times. Um, let's let's jump forward to to that. Uh, how did you become a foreign correspondent there, and and tell us a little bit about where you served.
2: Sure. Um, I joined the Times in their Washington bureau, uh, and spent the first couple of years covering sort of the Washington equivalent of general assignment. And then I, I covered the Pentagon for about a year. Uh, and and one day, Bill Kovach, who was the bureau chief, came over, sat down on the corner of my desk with his cup of coffee, and said, "I seem to recall you saying when you." Were hired that you'd be interested in being a foreign correspondent. What kind of places did you have in mind? And I said, you know, to myself, well, doing a little career planning. This is really that's cool. <laughs> and, that's, and I thought, where, is, where on earth would they be likely to send somebody who's never been a foreign correspondent before and has only been working here for two years? Uh, so I started talking about Africa. I traveled both to East Africa and West Africa um uh and earlier either as a tourist or one or two cases on press junkets uh and i re- started talking about my interest in africa and and the bureau chief i could see his eyes sort of glazing over he this really was not the conversation he planned to have so i just sort of shut up and he said have you ever thought about russia <laughs> uh and i hadn't but i said i would take about a day to think it over and uh but sort of knew from the moment i would say yes i mean this was very early in the gorbachev years where there was you know it was clearly a moment whether not everybody uh had confidence that he was going to survive or or manage to pull off any serious changes um But whether he succeeded or failed, it was going to be a big story. Um, So they put me in language school for full-time language for about nine or 10 months. Uh, And off I went to to Moscow uh, to the most amazing. I was there for almost five years, including some time where I was working on a book that never got finished. and that was, was definitely amazing. the deep
1: end of the pool.
2: It was it was the deep end of the pool. Uh, I, I've always sort of wondered why why me, uh, I and mean, there was no obvious reason why they would have sent me off to do that, to to cover that story. Um, and I think it was because my last year at, uh, uh, at covering the Pentagon, I had done a lot of arms control stuff, and I, it was sort of. The Russia story was kind of an arms control story in, in mm-hmm. the conventional wisdom. Uh, of course, when I got there, I, I probably wrote a few stories about arms control when there were presidential summits, but uh, in fact, I'm sure I did. But that was not the main story at all. Uh, it was the story of whether this you know country that we'd spent most of our lives um, regarding as an existential threat to our existence um, whether it could change and become a more humane and and less threatening country, and up to a point, it did for a while. Yeah,
0: Bill, You also spent some time in South Africa as a foreign correspondent, and from your time in Russia, do you have? I um, um, can only imagine you have great stories from from your time in both countries. Can you share one or two of those with us?
2: Sure. Um, I think South Africa was the only job I've had that I actually actively applied for. Uh, I have just sort of stumbled, luckily, into, into great assignments. Um, but when I was coming to the, to the end of my time in Moscow, um, and I won a big prize or two, so uh, I figured I had some leverage. And I asked for South Africa and got it. Uh, and I, when I arrived, uh, the kind of classic apartheid system had mostly been dismantled. But the question was whether the, the, I mean, it, it looked pretty obvious that whites were going to have to cede power. The question was whether it was going to happen in a, a bloodbath or in a more um, nonviolent transition. Uh, and I was there for about three years. Uh, I, it was an amazing place. I mean, you know, I, I consider myself lucky to have covered some of the great figures of the 20th century, Gorbachev and Yeltsin in Russia, and Andrei Sakharov, the great dissident, who I came to know very well, um, but Mandela is in a class by himself, uh, and he was remarkably accessible. Including uh, about a year after the the election, uh, when he became when he became president, I asked him if I could spend a day tagging along with him and watching him be president of South Africa, and amazingly, he said yes. Wow, and to sort of be a fly on the wall watching Mandela be president was—I mean, I wasn't allowed to sit in the security briefing. (laughs) Transparency has its limits, Um, but I sat in his office while he for a while while he just fielded phone calls and and got a real sense of the, the politician. That's that's always been my take on and mandela i mean yes he's a heroic figure but first and foremost he's an incredibly skillful politician uh and he i I remember um while i was sitting in his office and he got a phone call from the head of the the country's largest supermarket chain um who had supported him in the election uh, and who had a problem with a strike that was going on and he was calling i mean from a Journalist point of view, the fact that Mandela is taking a phone call from a campaign donor to ask him to help talk the labor movement out of the strike, the labor movement being a huge Mandela constituency, was a little felt a little shady. Um, but it also, you know, when I say he's a politician, I mean he's a politician with. Uh, I mean, he's not a purist. He's not. He's clearly a heroic figure, and but there was an element of pragmatism that sometimes gets lost in the, in the sort of glory of the man. Yeah,
1: the art of the possible.
2: The art of the possible, yeah. I mean, South Africa, well, you know, which is now st- still suffering under tremendous inequality and in uh, some portions of the country, uh, the AIDS epidemic has not been stopped. And they've yet to be, feel the full force of the coronavirus impact. So it's a, you know, it's, it has not turned all rosy, um, but it is a functioning democracy with a live, lively opposition, uh, a, a pretty unfettered media, um, uh, and a kind of deep bench of talent. Uh, so. And that's, you know, more than anybody else, that's to Mandela's credit.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you know, talking, speaking of the art of the possible, I mean, one of the things that that he did in order, in, in cutting a deal, writing a new constitution, and, and and then moving to the first elections that blacks were allowed to vote in, Um was he basically guaranteed that there would not be a purge of the military and the civil service or all the plum jobs were held by whites that he would take care of and, and, and it wouldn't confiscate the farmers, white farmers' lands. Um, you know, that was a hell of a compromise. But it right. allowed them to make the transition without spilling a lot of blood. They spilled yeah. a bit of blood, but but not... What you, you would expect in the country undergoing that kind of a transition.
1: So after um, you came home, you um, so you were bureau chief, right, in in South Africa. Is that yes. right? And then mm-hmm. so that was already was a, kind was of a step into a yeah, a step a into one. management of your own one. <laughs> so we are managing <laughs> <Yeah>. yourself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's hard to and do sometimes. Me, it's not easy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but then you uh, um, you know you became editor uh, managing editor at the times executive editor um, what's it what's involved in the move from being a reporter to being an editor?
2: Yeah, well <laughs> when i was in south africa uh joe lullivald came to visit who was the executive editor at the time and kind of my mentor at the time at the new york times and he he had had a brilliant uh tour of duty covering south africa and he wanted to come take a look at it and so we spent a lot of time driving around together it's a big country and we had conversations and he tried to convince me that being editor an editor of some kind would be you know, a satisfying next step. And I essentially told them I'd rather stick pencils in my eyes than be an editor and give up. Yes. You know, roaming around, finding stories, um, uh, and having kind of responsibility for covering a whole piece of the world, um, as opposed to being chained to a desk and processing other people's work. Um, but after I'd been in South Africa for three years, you know, Joe sent me a letter saying, "I know you're probably going to say no, but uh, but I'd like you to be the foreign editor." And it's one thing to say you don't want to be an editor; uh, it's something else to say you don't want to be the foreign editor of the New York Times, Just, you know, a paper that cares hugely about the state of the world and where. Um, and is read by people who care about the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so I said yes, and I came back, and I discovered uh, that I actually liked it. Um, it's there's just a weird thing about journalism. Um, we t- that we tend to take reporters uh, and turn them into editors, and the the. the skill set are, are so different and the kind of frame of mind is so different. Reporters tend to be loners. They tend to be question, questioning of authority, including their own bosses. Um, they tend to have a fair amount of ego invested in the job. And as an editor, you're supposed to suppress your ego and not not get into the bad habit of you know ordering people to do the story the way you would do it um but serving as sort of the first knowledgeable reader of of their stories letting reporters tell you what the story is and write it with some of their own voice um i mean all of, almost all of the editors that I've seen who failed uh, at editing it was because they couldn't let the the, the reporter own the story um, they had to do it their way even if you know, they were farther back from the front lines. Uh, so I guess, you know, I I tend to be good at delegating. Um, and having you know had the luxury of having a, a free reign as a correspondent, I I realized the, the value of that. Mm-hmm. Uh So I was foreign editor for a few years and then moved up to managing editor uh, under Joe Welleveld. And then in 2001, Joe announced his retirement. We had a kind of bake-off. There were really two serious candidates, me and Howell Rains, who had been the editor of the opinion pages for, I think, nine years at that time. and who uh uh, you know i've I've, I've told people that if it had been my choice to make i would have chosen how and the publisher did choose how and they uh, arranged for me to go into a happy exile as an op-ed columnist uh and about three days after i started my new life as an op-ed columnist 9 11 happened Oh, wow. uh, you talk about, you know, having to watch from the sidelines when a story of huge magnitude hits. Oh, uh, wow. That was, that was, I just, I, re- I really felt a sense of being out of it. Um, obviously, I, I wrote columns about uh, 9-11 and uh, including some kind of stupid columns. Um, but it was not the same as being you know in on the the story day to day so a couple of years passed um, I wrote columns uh the times won i think seven Pulitzers in one year for the coverage of nine eleven um, and then how sort of ran out of goodwill uh, he, the the catalyst for his demise as executive editor was uh, Jason Blair, a young reporter who oh, yeah. um, was caught fabricating stories. He would he would call in stories from his living room and claim that he was in, in some location across the country, uh, and he weird. would plagiarize material from other people. I mean, it was, it was it went on way too long, and you know, and Hal ended up paying the price for it. Uh, and the second time around, I got the brass ring.
0: Well, mm-hmm. today the New York Times seems to have secured its niche as a national newspaper, while uh, the LA Times has really fallen on hard times. Um, what do you think has made the difference for the New York Times?
2: Like the main thing... It, the, um, as as I, I, I agree with you, by the way, that the Times feels pretty secure now, and I certainly hope that's true because they pay me a pension, uh, and, and also I, I, I mean I love the place on its merits, but I also enjoyed the comfort of having a, having a, a, a pension. Uh, the short answer is the Salzberger family. You know, the Times is one of very few of the. Family-owned newspapers that is still run by the family, and it's run by a family that has um, bought into the values of quality journalism. They, they, you know, uh, when times were tough, they took a big hit in in dividends, um, mm-hmm. you know, so that the paper could continue to maintain a high level of quality. It's so got when I was executive editor, the population of the newsroom was about 1200, 1250, fluctuated a bit. I think it's 1600 now. Uh, a lot of them are doing things that didn't exist when I was executive editor, you know, greatly expanded interactive graphics and video, and you are know, doing the daily, which is a great morning podcast. Uh, you know, I do, I think. That um, and another reason. I mean, the, the family support was is absolutely essential. there are Other families have sold off papers in Boston, yeah. uh, Los Angeles, uh, Washington, uh, and you know once the the element of kind of corporate responsibility when when you when you're obliged to be to be um, appeasing stockholders um, and paying out big bonuses, um, it costs you in terms of the quality. I, that said, you know, I don't know enough about the LA Times today to prognosticate, but it does. It, it falls in the, the class of um, newspapers I think of as following the oligarch model um you know the washington post has jeff bezos uh amazon uh as the owner and so far he's been willing to invest lots and lots of his billions into uh increasing the staff you know and and blowing out the coverage doing a great investigative work um and the la times also has a you know a billionaire owner um, you know bloomberg's another example bloomberg news um you know it kind of harkened back to the days when Joseph pulitzer and randall first were the oligarchs who owned the newspapers and that didn't always end well so you have to be a little bit wary of you know trusting the the values and the objectivity of the, of the new landlords, um, (laughs) the new press barons. Um, but I, you know, I, you know, Hurst and Pulitzer didn't, didn't only abuse their powers. They used them sometimes for good. Uh, and you know, who knows?
1: So you left the times to go to, um, a non sort of journalistic startup, kind of an experimental thing called uh, the Marshall Project. Uh, what drew you to that? What did you decide to make that leap?
2: Uh, well, again, you know, I sort of luckily stumbled into it. Um, Neil Barsky, who was uh, the uh, founder of the Marshall Project, uh, Neil started out as a reporter, worked for the Wall Street Journal, covered Donald Trump, he was very proud of the fact that in one of his books, Trump referred to him as the most obnoxious reporter who had ever come around. <laughs> that uh, is
1: quite a compliment.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's one that you frame and hang on your wall. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Neil, Neil likes to say that reporting for The Wall Street Journal, he realized you didn't have to be all that smart to get rich. So he went into trading. <laughs> uh started a hedge fund sold it i think started in the second hedge fund um, and then decided he wanted to give back and um you know he recognized first of all that the criminal justice system was in sore need of attention and second of all that because of the crisis in the news business um, those issues weren't being very aggressively covered they, they You know, investigative reporting generally was suffering, and particularly investigative reporting about things like prisons, which don't exactly practice transparency anyway. Um, So he invited me to breakfast and asked if I would like to be the first editor of it. Um, And at that point, I was in my second go around as an op ed writer and Mm -hmm. write whatever you want. So just to satisfy my curiosity, I wrote a couple of columns about criminal justice issues, which, which you know meant spending a lot of time on the phone talking to interesting people, academics and practitioners of uh, you know, lawyers and defense defense lawyers mostly, <laughs> and um, I fell in love with the subject. I mean, it was. There was just just so much there that was was being missed. Um, And I had had, at that point, 30 years at the New York Times. It felt like a a good chance to try something new. It's always appealing to start something from scratch. Um, And so I retired from the Times and joined up. That was about six years ago. Uh, And it was great. I, and it's gotten—it's only gotten better since I left. <laughs> I, I hasten to add, um, but you know, I went out and hired staff um, because it was a startup. Uh, you know, we were hiring mostly people with not a lot of experience, um, and, and at that time, you didn't—you couldn't contemplate people leaving the New York Times or the Washington Post to go be a reporter at a startup with uncertain future um, since then over time it's acquired enough of a reputation that in fact you can hire away from the Washington Post and the New York Times um, it's it's I think got a pretty good reputation uh, We won a Pulitzer early on uh, which is for a nonprofit start was highly unusual uh, I think we were not the first I think um, ProPublica was the first nonprofit to win a Pulitzer, but we were second or third, uh, and that gave that bought us a lot of credibility in the journalism world. Uh, and it's you know when Neil and I had our first meeting, he, he asked him what success would look like, uh, and he said success would be going into the um, next presidential election and having the the serious candidates feel they were obliged to come up with a plan to reform criminal justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you've followed the the democratic debate, at least, uh, going into the 2020 elections, uh, that's happened. Now, it wasn't just the Marshall Project that made it happen. There were a series of killings of black men by white cops and some stories of wrongful convictions that got I think got people more aware of the failings of the system um, people picked up on the numbers which show that we're the most incarcerated country on earth um, uh, but we it I think we all felt a sense of accomplishment that we we had at least something to do with Um, giving the data a higher profile.
0: What do you think about the future of nonprofits and journalism? Is the Marsha Project a model for tomorrow's journalism, or is it an outlier?
2: I think it's a model. I don't know that it's the model. Um, there there, There are a number of news organizations that have tried that, that model. Some of them are subject-specific, like Chalkbeat, which does education, and there's a, there's one that does climate news. Um, Kaiser Health does health, obviously. Um, so, and there and a number of uh, nonprofit, regional, and investigative newsrooms have started. Um, I I don't know how many of them will survive current economic, you know, trauma. Um, But I, you know, but I I do think that that's, that's one way of, um, that news organizations will find to uh, assure their survival. I mean, the ultimate nonprofit probably is NPR, which uh, I don't think shows any signs of of decline, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, nonprofit is one one avenue. I think that the oligarch model, as we talked about earlier, is another. Uh, I think there are a few places that will um, figure out how to do a subscriber model. The, the New York Times will is while well, it does some, um, still has some ad revenue, its main. Um, source of revenue is subscriptions uh and they you know they made one of the the last things i did and when i was at the times uh when i was the executive editor of the times was um i was on a committee that had to decide whether or not we were going to start charging for content online Uh, and fortunately we just made the right decision you know, because as long as you're putting out a good product, there will always be subscribers, but the advertising base is has you know, been greatly spirited away by Facebook and Google um, yeah. so I think there will be you know there will be some places that will get by on a subscriber model, notably the times uh, mm-hmm. there will be there may be some that will figure out uh, a sort of local niche where they can assemble enough local advertisers, although the real trauma in the news industry has been local coverage. I think in the last 15 years, 2,000 local newspapers have died. I mean, that's a, a, a horrifying attrition rate. Um,
1: and a lot of others have been bought up by by chains and have become less than they were... <clears throat>
2: Yeah, that's f- certainly true. I mean, it's we tend to talk about newspapers being killed off by the internet, uh, which and there's a lot of truth in that. But I always remind people that before the internet started killing newspapers, newspaper publishers were killing newspapers. <laughs> and I, I've I've worked in two cities that went from two newspapers down to one. When I was at the Oregonian, my first newspaper. Uh, we competed with the Oregon Journal. Uh, the, the journal folded that a while after I left Portland. Uh, I worked for the Dallas Times-Herald. Um, after I left, the, the owners of the Dallas Morning News bought the Times-Herald and shut it down the next day. Um, so, you know, newspaper publishers... Uh, I mean, understandably... It, they did see the revenues to support competing newspapers, but um, you know it, the newspaper industry profit motive was was killing newspapers before the internet was even invented.
1: Yeah. So I mean, it's a it's still kind of a strange time in journalism, you know, with um, a president who calls the media the enemy of the people, and you know, just the the a lot of people who don't trust the media. Um, so looking at the world of journalism today, what worries you and what gives you hope?
2: You know, there's a book that came out, I think, oh, about two years ago called How Democracies Die, written by a couple of um, political scientists at Harvard.
1: And Yeah, one of them is Pomona grads. Is that right? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah it's, you know, it's become a kind of genre of books about the threats to democracy. And I I take that very seriously. And How Democracies Die was a kind of textbook based on a number of um, European and Latin American countries that had had democracies and then lost them to authoritarian regimes. Uh, And they, they go through and Identify a number of the danger signs, you know, refusal to accept the legitimacy of opposition um, Refusal to abide by the norms of of democracy um, uh, Or to accept limitations on your power and one of them prominently is intolerance of a free press Mm -hmm. Um, I'm obviously not an objective judge on this subject, but I I genuinely do believe, and we're seeing this now in the coverage of the coronavirus, uh, I mean, information is essential to sustaining democracy and and actually to sustaining the health of individual people. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess what makes me optimistic about the news business is, is what has always made me optimistic about it is that there's a demand for it um and and a need for it uh and and where there's many people will figure out a way to get it and pay for it Um, you know what scares me i guess you know although that i don't despair but what 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 I've, one of the things I find worrying is, um, and here we go blaming the internet again, <laughs> but um, you know we've raised maybe a couple of generations of people who are, are who get their information from the internet but have never had a civics class or a uh, you know a class in news literacy. I've recently gone on the national advisory board of something called the News Literacy Pro- Project. Which makes um, educational videos and materials for mostly for middle school and high school students, and how to tell the difference between trustworthy news and and the fake stuff. Uh, and so, you know, the, the business model is a, is still sorting itself out. Um, but I, I I don't think we should be so preoccupied with the business model that we don't think about the audience problem. You know, we, we need to have a, an audience that um, knows when it's being, or senses when it's being lied to and that has, you know, approaches news organizations, news reports with a level of skepticism. Um Nonetheless, I've, you know, I've persist in my optimistic, my stubbornly optimistic view that, that we'll be around for a while.
1: So on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking with uh, retired journalist Bill Keller, 19, class of 1970, one of Pomona's favorite sons. Um, it's good to, It's been good to talk with you, Bill.
2: You too. Thanks for inviting me to do this.
0: Thank you, Bill. And to all who have stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.